0: Let me invite you, church, to open up God's Word with me this morning to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, you can find our text on page 1004 of your Pew Bible. And, uh, for those of you that, uh, like to follow along with the sermon outline that's printed in your bulletin, I'll have to confess up front that it's, uh, it's long, it's wrong. It is long, and it's, it's wrong because, um, uh, originally I had planned, and that's on me, originally I had planned to go all the way through chapter 22, verse 5 today, but uh, at uh, sort of the 11th hour, so to speak, of sermon prep, decided that that was going to be more than we could tackle in a given Sunday if we were going to deal with this text on any level at all. So we're going to deal with the first part of this, and we're going to stop after chapter 21, uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 21 today, so... Um, Uh, Perhaps, uh, no promises made, but uh, I will say the first service got out just a a few minutes earlier than normal, Uh, so you may be uh, to lunch on time today. We'll see, though. You know, the Spirit could change that and lead in a new direction. Uh, But as you find your place there in Revelation chapter 21, uh, let me invite you uh, to join me standing for the reading of God's holy word. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was one hundred and forty-four cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold. It's pure as transparent glass. Would you bow with me? Father, this morning we give you thanks uh, for your word. Lord, we express our faith in you and we express our dependence upon you. Lord, we pray that you would guide us now in the presence and power of your spirit, that we might rightly understand what it is that you have for us through this portion of your word and that our lives might be uh, changed uh, for your glory as a result of it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> About 20 years ago, uh, in 1999, Bart uh, Miller, the lead singer of Mercy Me, wrote and composed the soon-to-be-hit song, I Can Only Imagine. Uh, that uh, song then became the, uh, the, the most played Christian single of 2002 and uh, quickly became uh, an unexpected mainstream hit the very next year. The lyrics of that song invited us to celebrate and to consider heaven, conveying both its certainty and its mystery. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face, God, is before me. I can only imagine, I can only imagine... Well, church, our text for this morning and for next week invites us to imagine. John's recorded vision invites us as God's people to pause and to praise. To anticipate and to absorb, to soak it in and then to long to be with him. Church, God is preparing the perfect place for his people. According to God's word, God is preparing the perfect place for his people. Now I know it can be quite easy for us to get lost in the images and the descriptions in this book, but the book of Revelation is a literary masterpiece. The numbers and the order and the imagery, none of it is random. It's all calculated and it's intentional. In fact, by the way that John writes uh, this, he expects us as his readers to catch a contrast that he's making. He expects us to catch the contrast that he's making between the holy city and the bride of the Lamb, uh, and Babylon, who is portrayed as the great prostitute. In fact, look back with me at God's Word. Turn back a couple chapters to chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. John writes, he says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. He says, There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Verse 4, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Verse 5, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now back to chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Notice the correlation. Notice the consistent language and The contrast that he is setting up, verse 9 of chapter 21, he says, One of the seven angels came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In other words, the Bible is telling us here that the city of man does not compare to the city of God. It's a cheap imitation for the city of God. The allure of the world is a cheap imitation for the beauty with which God clothes his people. One theologian and scholar states it this way. He says, in contrast to Rome, remember Babylon uh, is a a, a place that's used consistently in Scripture to refer to uh, God's people's chief enemy in this world. And so in its original context, no doubt the readers of Revelation would have would have connected Babylon with Rome in their day, in the Roman Empire. This theologian says, In contrast to Rome, the gaudy prostitute, now wiped from the face of the earth, stands the eternal new Jerusalem, the bejeweled bride of Christ, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, as he did with the prostitute and Babylon, John mixes metaphors once again. The bride of the Lamb is the holy city. And the holy city is the bride of the Lamb. What what are we to make of this? I think this is another example of the type of language and literature John is using. He's recording imagery and symbols to portray certain spiritual truths. Personally, I don't think we're meant to press and exhaust every detail, but to glean spiritual truths from the details that motivate faithfulness to God in the present as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. You see, these metaphors communicate that like Meadowbrook Baptist Church is both a people and a place. So heaven or the new Jerusalem is both a people and a place. Remember that Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, my father's house has many rooms. The text we love, this is good news. Jesus says, if that were not so, uh, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Friends, God is preparing the perfect place for his people and it will display God's majestic glory. It will display God's majestic glory. Verse 11 of our text, It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper Clear as crystal. You see, the portrait of the new Jerusalem described here in God's word is meant to wow us. It is meant to encourage us. It is meant to remind us that God's city is far greater and far more glorious than Babylon or any other earthly place. Our chapter paints an overwhelming portrait that is meant to knock us off our feet and to prod us to worship the Lord in the present and to endure with faithfulness until Christ the Lord comes again for His people. As you probably know by now, readers deal with the details of this text in in various ways. Are are the dimensions uh, here the literal dimensions of the heavenly city? Or are they significant numbers symbolically portraying specific spiritual truths? Now I want to be cautious about entering that debate this morning, but I, I do think this may be a scenario where pressing every detail can detract if we're not careful from the magnificent picture that is provided. Think of a rainbow or a sunset. That beautiful images given by God that stun us and rightly so should cause us to, to pause and to praise and to consider the, the greatness and the grandeur of, of God's creation. But when you're driving down a road and you see a rainbow, how, how many of you stop your car and get out and look at the rainbow and then begin to look at every individual color of the electromagnetic spectrum contemplating all the reflection and refraction and dispersion of light through the water droplets opposite the sun in the sky? Anybody go there? Mitch does. I believe it. (laughs) I I bet one or two or maybe three or four, maybe a few folks go there. Uh, But to go there for most of us and to ignore the larger portrait is to miss the beauty. And likewise, when it comes to John's description of the city of God, don't miss the forest for the sake of the trees. I think this is more like the work of an artist on a canvas than it is a set of detailed architectural drawings. Do the details matter? Absolutely. Intentional and calculated and specific that describe God's eternal and holy city in ways that resembled ancient cities and would have readily resonated with John's original audience. For example... An unbelievably great high wall all the way around, suggesting absolute safety and security. Gates on every single side, indicating that the door is open for people from every direction to come and to be a part of this place. And the gates are are manned, they're watched by God's angels, ensuring that nothing evil or impure ever enters this perfect city. God is preparing the perfect place for his people. It will display God's majestic glory and it will portray the bride's imputed beauty. It will portray the bride's imputed beauty. Imputed is a word that's often used by theologians to describe the righteousness that we receive by God's grace through faith in Jesus. In other words, Christ's righteousness, His status before the Most High God is imputed to us. It's it's given to us. It's attributed to us vicariously through Jesus because of what He has done for us. But here the angel says to John in verse 9, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come come and see. You don't don't want to miss this. Come see the bride, the, the wife of the Lamb. Come see God's people. And then the angel shows Him God's city. In other words, the beauty of this place is descriptive of the beauty of God's people, the bride of the Lamb. When I think of a bride, I think of one who is overjoyed at the prospect of of getting married. You see Ashley tease her about this in the first service. I said, at least that was right in my case. Maybe not. I don't know, maybe not so much. I think there's a little bit of anxiety there. What, what are you doing? What, who is this guy I'm, I'm marrying? But typically that's the case, right? Typically there's excitement and there's anticipation. When I think of a bride, I think of one who has done a great deal to get herself ready. A beautiful dress has been purchased. Some may even suntan or diet in an effort to present their best look for that day. A hairdresser and a makeup artist are often involved. Jewelry put on. Nails are painted. We all know the image of a beautiful bride. But this bride in this text doesn't so much get herself ready as she graciously receives readiness. She doesn't make herself beautiful. God clothes her in unmatched beauty, imputed beauty. Her readiness, her preparedness, her anticipation, her, her joy, her beauty, they all stem from what her groom has done for her. Because her groom is her maker and also her redeemer. He is the one who builds the city, who issues the invitation, and who throws the celebration. Like the jewels that are listed, the twelve jewels, the precious stones that are mentioned in this text, no doubt an allusion to the breastplate that the high priest uh, wore according to God's instructions in the Old Testament. You want to read that text, look back at Exodus chapter 28. This beautifully uh, 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 decorated breastplate that Aaron was to wear and his descendants when they performed the ministry of the, the priesthood. That probably implying through this text that all the people who are gathered in God's eternal city are priests. In fact, even a high priest... A message consistent with the rest of God's word that God is setting his people apart to be a kingdom of of priests. But here, John will not let us forget that we will not only enter heaven by the gospel of grace, but we will only remain in heaven for all eternity because of the blood of the lamb. God's word seven is a significant number, a number for completion and perfection And seven times John mentions the Lamb in this extended vision. From chapter 21, verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. Seven times he mentions the Lamb. Verse 9, verse 14, verse 22, and 23, verse 27... Chapter 22, verse 1 and verse 3, seven times he mentions the lamb, clearly implying that even in heaven we will readily know that we are only there because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of the spotless lamb who takes away our sins. In other words, we will never forget that we are only there because of the grace of God. In church, heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there. The city of God will display God's majestic glory. It will portray the bride's imputed beauty. And it will prove God's covenant faithfulness. It will prove God's covenant faithfulness. Maybe you noticed all the twelves and multiples of twelve in this text. If not, take note of them. Twelve gates. Twelve angels. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve foundations. Twelve apostles. 12,000 stadia in length, which is about 1,400 miles. 12,000 stadia in width and 12,000 stadia high. Notice this is a square but also a cube and more about that next week. A wall of 144 cubits, 12 times 12 in width. It's about 200 feet. 12 different types of precious stones and 12 pearls that are each of the 12 gates. This is a massive city of 12. So why 12? Twelve is also a significant number in God's word. Twelve is the biblical number for the people of God. And the dimensions of God's eternal city clearly imply here. It's as if the pages of scripture are screaming here that this city will house all of God's people. That God's people will be there. That billions of followers of Jesus throughout the ages from all across the earth enjoy the eternal privileges of being in covenant relationship with God. Recipients of His promises forever reconciled by His grace through faith. You know, there's much about God that is mysterious. There's much about God that we simply must receive in faith without fully understanding. There's much we are yet to understand. It's hard for our human minds to get around the idea of the eternality of God. That He has always been and that He will always be. The relationship between His justice and His mercy. The relationship between God's sovereignty and uh, the free will of humanity. The doctrine of the Trinity. That He is one God that is in three distinct persons. Father, Spirit, and Son. If we take the biblical teaching and account seriously as we must, then God's ways and His thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. But from beginning to end, one thing the Bible clearly and consistently declares is that God always keeps His promises. He is always faithful. He is always true to His word, completely unlike the devil. God never lies and He never deceives. He is forever faithful. And God's promises are not made on a whim. They're not flippant or sudden. You see, like everything in the Bible, His his promises are calculated and they're consistent. He has a plan, and since the beginning of creation, He has been working out this plan of redeeming a people, of calling and restoring a rebellious people to be the recipients of His unfailing love. This is the story of God's Word. God called Abraham, it's recorded back in Genesis chapter 12, and he told Abraham to pack up, to to leave his land, to leave his people, to leave his family, and to follow the Lord to a new land, where his descendants would become a great nation. And God said to him, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Blessed to be a blessing upon the nations of the world. Abraham, of course, the story continues, becomes the father of the Israelites. He becomes the great-grandfather of the twelve tribes. The same twelve tribes of Israel mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. Signifying God's lasting faithfulness to his people and his promises. One of those promises was that all peoples or all nations on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that blessing ultimately comes, we know, many, many, many generations later through the tribe of Judah, through a descendant of King David. Near the turn of the millennium, the Messiah is born, Jesus of Nazareth. is born in Bethlehem, and through his ministry, the mission he fulfills as the perfect Lamb of God who is sacrificed on a cross for human sins. The good news of salvation by God's grace through faith And His one and only Son spreads to the Gentiles or the nations of the world. And church, this is the message that we build our lives upon. This is the message that the church is built upon. This gospel calling for repentance and faith in the Savior is not some separate message from the story that precedes it. It's not a later alteration or addition or correction that allows a secondary track of salvation for non-Jews like you and me. No, this gospel of Jesus that was proclaimed by Christ's apostles is the fulfillment of all that God planned and promised to do through Abraham and his offspring, which is why this holy city of God not only bears witness to the twelve tribes of Israel, verse 12, but also to the twelve apostles of the Lamb, verse 14. God is preparing the perfect place. For his people. And all of his people. Will be there. But only God's people will be there. And once again. John. Is intentional. To remind his readers. Right up to the very end of things. He reminds us that there's more than one final destination. That although the city of God will be filled with people from every nation. Tribe people and language. All people will not be there. Verse 27, he says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Meaning only those whose sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. The perfect, spotless, blameless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, friend, are your sins covered by the blood of the Lamb. Have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? Have you been reconciled? Have you been restored? Have you been imputed with the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. How could we undergo such a transformation? Such a, a a drastic identity change before the Most High God. There is only one way by turning to Jesus in faith. Repent and believe and you can rest assured that you too will enter God's holy city. That you too will be there. Confess your sin against God and express your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Friend, will you be there? Will you be there? Remember the words of Jesus. Jesus said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He told his fathers, he said, you, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And one of his disciples, Thomas, says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, come to the Father through me. Come to the Father through me. Have you come to the Father through Jesus' Son? Friend, will you be there? Would you bow with me? Lord, we want to be there. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has provided the way for us to be with you forever. Recipients of your promises and of your plan. Father, we acknowledge this morning that none of us deserve to be in your eternal city. None of us deserve to be in this place that you are preparing for your people. And yet, by your grace, you issue an invitation to us. You offer us salvation through Jesus. Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us a longing for the day. Stir our hearts, work in our lives that that we might love and long to be with you, that we might trust you enough that we believe in your promises and we anticipate your return. Lord, guide us now as we sing your praises, as we express our faith, what as we turn to Christ, be glorified in us, your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.